Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Hey Kerwin, where you have the questions and I give the answers. So the way Hey Kerwin works, who's actually seen any of the videos of Hey Kerwin online? Okay, oh, you guys are so kind. Um, so it's gonna work exactly like that. We're gonna, we've got mic runners that are gonna be running around the room and you guys essentially get to ask hashtag Hey Kerwin any question that you want, but it's not just to me. This is the first time I've actually had guests on the show. Um, I'm, unfortunately, I couldn't get better ones at short notice. Um, <laughs> But look, you just got to make do what you can with what you got. So, because uh, one of the things we do get, you know, with Marie starting to do some webinars now, and, and Sean, you know, oftentimes people say, well, you know, we'd love to ask everyone some questions in the office as well. Uh, so rather than bring the whole team up here, we thought we'd bring the three of us up, and yeah, just open ourselves up to you know questions that you might have about uh, life, uh, love, and um, Sean's hairstyle. All right. So yeah, any questions? Who wants to start? Don't touch it. Hello, uh, I'm Marcus, um, hey, Marcus. Kerwin, uh, Sean and Marie, I would like to ask you, because of your extensive business knowledge, but also because it's a sort of a, kind of a vested uh, thing that I have about using humour in the workplace, because I know that you have fantastic uh, energy when, when we're here, and I'm sure that permeates throughout your businesses, but just in terms of how you use that and, and how that can sometimes go wrong. You know? Right. So how do we use humor? Yeah. Okay. And, and, and using it as a tool as well. As a tool. Okay. Marie, what? Two, I was going to say two words. Very poorly. Sean <laughs> um, <laughs> is notorious in the office for having the worst jokes. Like, he, we just call him daddy jokes. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. I've, I've had that a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> Marie, what's your perspective? I think I'm hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the funniest person I know. <laughs> and, we had to write uh, that in your contract. Uh, yeah, humour is a really important part of every day at, at the office. Uh, not to break the tension, because we certainly hold the tension, but certainly having fun is critical. Anyone who's crewed with me uh, behind the scenes, what I do in the crew room is basically what we do in the office. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, I'll, I'll echo that. Um, I, we use a lot of humour on a very regular basis for a whole range of reasons. You know, everything from just connection. I find humour is a great way to connect with people. It helps lower defences. Would you agree with that? Like when you crack a joke, it can like break the ice, especially in, in a high tension situation. I think the biggest challenge I have is the inappropriate level of my humour. Um, because sometimes I just, I have no filter and I just speak my mind and Marie just looks there and cringes. And, and when Kerwin says sometimes, he means always. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we like humour. And look, you spend eight hours in the office, ten hours in the office, you know, five days, what you spend... Twelve. Most... <laughs> We're spending 16? most of our lives there. Uh, all so of our lives. All of our lives. <laughs> oh, let's be honest, we actually don't have a life. This is our life. Welcome to our life. Uh, which is, this is now our lounge room. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, humour, great one. All right, over here. Stand up. Um, question is, who's the most influential person you've met and how did they inspire you? Mm. Start with Marie, because she's met a lot Well, of... I was thinking of asking Marie first because she yeah. looks the most comfortable on stage, so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to say Tom Hopkins. Because uh, I read Tom Hopkins' book, the one where he's wearing the really bad cardigan on the front, 
uh, it was a sales book. It was my first introduction to sales. The and art of sales? The art of selling, yeah. yeah. Selling. And when I uh, got to meet Tom, uh, it was an interesting... St Can I tell a story? Yeah, please. It's what it's here. Really? Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'll, get I'll get comfortable. Just checking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, actually, I was the crew director of an event that Tom was presenting at. And there's pretty strict rules that you're not meant to give books or things for signing and speakers have certain things in their contract. Uh, anyway, because I can go backstage and have access more than most people, I went back to the event director who's running this event and I said, look, it's a really special case. You know I normally wouldn't do this, but there's this person that's asked if they could get a book signed and they've given it to me and it was a bit awkward, I was a bit rushed, I'm really sorry to do this to you, but could you get Tom to sign it? And I've written on a little card on the inside and she sits down and she says, yeah, and she, and she opens it up and she says, to Marie, you're the best salesperson in the world. Is that you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he signed it. <laughs> yeah, so Tom Thumb, number one. Sorry, I've got, I've got one on. Say Kerwin. Say Kerwin, Sean. It <laughs> uh, could be awkward. No. Uh, I'll say Marie. No, I'd, I'd say um, more recently would be having the opportunity to spend 15 minutes chatting to Gary V before he went on stage at our, at our Vegas event. You know, and I didn't really know Gary, so I just spoke to him on the level. His kids are very much the same age as my kids. We had a good chat with him, and I, I, I had seen him around then. I was like, do you actually have a life outside that? And he was talking about how his, you know, his, his video content portrays that he's you know, working 18 hours a day. Most days he's working 17, but he does actually, you know, have time with his kids and does stuff like that. It was actually good to connect with somebody on the level. Yeah, he's not at 11 like he is what you see him. He's still at about eight and a half, but he's... We had a very mellow Gary in yeah. uh, Vegas. We yeah. had a very... Who was in Vegas? Would you agree we had a very mellow Gary? Not the typical Gary that you see. No, so it was just, it was just it really was nice to meet someone who's just, it was just, just a straight up guy, you know? It was really good to meet him, so... Uh, look, that's a, that's a really, that's a tough question for a whole range of reasons, but the one that, uh, as I searched through my mind right now, that is most, again, current, was Jocko Willink. Um, we had Jocko come to Queenstown, he wrote the book Extreme Ownership, uh, and he did a fantastic presentation for, for, for all the K2s. Uh, would you guys agree that we're there? Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Um, but then to actually go and have dinner with him that night, because he, you know, he's, he's actually quite a, a bit of a shy guy, so we went out to dinner that night, and we probably had about a two and a half hour dinner and we actually had a really good dialogue. And, you know, sometimes with people who have a, a bit of a public profile, you know, and I can relate to this, they can sometimes be a, bit, a little bit awkward when it comes to conversation. Uh, but he was, you know, basically what you saw on stage was what you saw off stage. And I, I really appreciate that about him. And he's very authentic, very real. But what inspired me most to answer your question specifically was the fact that he was, the, the level of discipline that this man has in his life, the level of structure that this man has in his life, I've, and I've, I've studied a lot of you know, high-performance individuals, but this guy was like, he's like nothing I've ever fucking seen. And he took me through his days and his schedule and how many years he's been doing, what, like decades he's been doing what he does, um, and his sheer grit to be able to get up and just repeat what he does and produce the results he does, yeah, it was just incredible. You're welcome. All right, let's go yellow. I forget what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> Long time listener, first time caller. That's from David. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, we're just having this discussion downstairs with a few people uh, about exit strategy and having a plan. So, being a teacher um, and feeling like I am my product, my question 
to hashtag hey Kerwin, hey Sean, hey Marie, is in the event of a Nissi or K2 for any reason, like an event coming up that you were not able to turn up and perform, let's say health reason or something else had happened, is there a backup plan that Sean, Marie, Eric, Matthias would take over? Uh, we're working towards having a scenario that could encompass that. Um, short of me being shot in the head, I don't see that happening, to be honest. Um, I have, and I may have said this earlier, I can't remember, you know, I have delivered events with severe gastroenteritis, I've delivered events with severe flu, uh, with severe infection, uh, recovering from surgery, tooth abscess. Six weeks after my stroke, I was told I wasn't, wouldn't be working for 12 months. I was working, you know, within six weeks, I was back working, uh, delivering events, you know. Uh, there's even been situations, like I had one, uh, I, I used to do a lot of business in the UK, that's, that's where I, uh, I met Kristen, and I had a promoter there that went broke, and all these people, like 120 people, had paid to come to my event. I never saw a dime of it, but the promoter went broke, so all the money basically disappeared, but there were 120 people that had paid to, to come and see an event with me. Uh, so I was so committed to what I did that I actually flew myself and part of my team from South Africa, I had a team in South Africa at that point, and Australia, to London, put on an entire event for 120 people and gave them what they paid for, even though I didn't actually get a cent for it. So in my mind, I just don't, as I said, and I've got to be really careful when I say this, um, because, you know, I could wake up tomorrow morning and get struck down with, you know, some kind of a severe thing that could take me out, but so far it hasn't happened. But to answer the question, we are looking at those scenarios. You know, we're, we're working with, obviously, people like Sean and Eric, um, clearly Eric's got a way to go. Um, <laughs> uh, that was a joke. Er let's just say, on, on a truth note, Eric coming into his power in the last six weeks has been one of the most... Speaking of inspiring people, Eric Collins and his transformation in the last two months has been incredible. Incredible. But... You're shit at keeping a secret. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next um, red, I think. Oh. Jay. Hey, g'day, Kerwin. Mate, this one's probably more directed at you. I've done a lot of public speaking in my day. I won't have nowhere near your class. So I wouldn't mind a few tips on, uh, probably your three tips on public speaking. And one thing I'm particularly interested in, because I know that you put a lot of thought into everything you do, and there's always a reason why you do things and I well, certainly don't have a problem with it, but is there any thought into how you present yourself on stage? I mean, as far as dress, you're very relaxed on stage and you dress very relaxed, whereas everyone else I've ever seen speaks always in suits and all that sort of stuff. Is that a polite way of saying I dress like a bum? <laughs> sort of. No, yeah. just, um, <laughs> you dress like us. What, what was the first question? Like, oh, three, Just your three tips, three, three tips. big tips on public speaking. Uh, don't swear. Uh, <laughs> Uh, look, I've lost a lot of like paid keynote gigs because I do have a potty mouth. But you know, it really comes down to your personal style. So for me, it's you know, focus on your strengths. You know, because there's nothing worse than the speaker who's you know. And that's what I loved about having. And we've had a lot of great experts, but Sh Shannon Brenton was the great a great example of a specialist. You know what I'm talking about? He stood up there, and his brain was incredible. So know what you're talking about. Uh, want nothing from the audience. Like literally, don't want anything from the audience. Because the moment you want something, you know, they can feel it. They can sense it. Um, and just be constantly see, co I constantly search for the center when I'm up here. The moment I feel like I'm a little bit off, 
Like if I'm getting a little bit too into an emotion because I'm trying to charge you guys up or whatever, or my breathing and I feel my respiration starting to increase at a level where I can feel perhaps a little bit of adrenaline might be kicking in, you know, I'll kick myself back. So staying centered is really important, especially for being able to apply energy for extended, like endurance. You know, I've, I've got a relatively, like Marie, like we've got fairly significant levels of endurance to be able to, you know, focus on things for extended periods of time. But the only way that we can do that is by actually having the, the tools to regulate in the moment as things come up, as emotions come up, as stress wants to come up when you're feeling fatigued and tired so that you can actually keep going through it without having any biochemical breakdown that is pulling you backwards from where you're trying to move to. So um, does that help? And the dress, look, I, um, who, knew, who knew me from my suit, suit days? Like, oh, God, I used to fucking hate wearing a suit so bad. Like, I hate, I fucking hate wearing suits. They're just uncomfortable. And I, and I even used to get tailored suits. So I just don't like, I'm just not comfortable in a suit. I feel this is a, like, I, I have nice clothes. I just don't wear them very often. Um, I'm most comfortable like you see me. And it was only really, when was it when I started actually taking the stage as I am in the office? 12 months ago. No, I think it was, when did I stop wearing collared shirts? Matea? After ta Taki Mort? No, it was, it was first. I think it was like maybe six months ago. Yeah, it was six months ago. I stopped wearing collared shirts, and that was my fi the final frontier was the collared shirt for me to be up here and just be myself. And now for me, I literally, and this kind of flows over into many areas of my life, and I don't mean to be, I'm not uncompassionate or I'm em un empathetic. I just don't really care what people think. Yeah, no, that's why I thought I've seen some videos of you with the suit jacket on. Yeah. I've never seen you like that. So I thought there must have been a conscious effort for some reason to get out of it and it's comfort, yeah. so that's cool. I, I honestly believe people will find people att more attractive when they present in a way that is most comfortable to them. Would you agree with that? Like, I, I, can't, I think there is nothing more attractive than a person that is comfortable in their skin and their clothes. You know, for me, it's, it's and you know, you can look beautiful in great clothes, but for me, and I, you know, I, I will dress up maybe once. I can't, my, my fucking wedding, I think, was the last time I wore a suit, but yeah, great question. All right, we'll go red. Hi, it's Wally here. Hey, Wally. Um, so my question is um, for those of the, the members here who want to build their own sort of online community, you know, like a private group to help their clients, um, what would your uh, tips and advice about why is it that the K2 groups is so active and successful? You know, people constantly helping each other out and as opposed to a lot of groups, which I'm sure we've all been in, where everyone's just there to sell their service or you know, things like that. And do you think that group will work if people here never actually met each other in person? Look, I, I honestly, I do mind if because I, I think my response to that, it all comes down to client selection. And I, I, I've had, the reason I'm so, I'm so I've scrutinized every single person coming in here is because I've had some bad experiences with them. Who's had bad clients before? Like, if, and, there's, and there's nothing worse than a real like, bad client, like a bad client that just makes you feel sick, but there's nothing worse than having a bad client where you feel the obligation of continually serving that client because they've given you money. Uh, so for me, you know, I think number one, client scrutiny is most important. Like, whether it be you know, an online community or you know, uh, like a face-to-face -face community like K2, there's gotta be a level of scrutiny that filters people as they come in to ensure that they have the values and the behaviours that are aligned with, you know, the, the community that you're trying to build. The challenge online is the more scrutiny you apply, the, the, the more barriers to entry that you have. So, you know, you've got to have something that's fairly attractive to pull enough people through to make them jump over whatever hurdles that are required for you to scrutinise them. 
And that's where I think having good quality content in the market that creates this desire to actually do more business with you, you know, you've got to have that magnet to draw them in and through the filter. So you've got the filter, but you've got to have something that's strong enough to attract them and pull them through whatever filters you have in place to get them through so that you know if whatever gets through, there's a much higher probability that they're going to be exactly what you're looking for. Uh, and a lot of that comes down to also the community management because community management is a term that we use online and we do that on a very regular basis. But what we do within the groups, what we do with the leaders, we do community management. We're constantly managing the community, checking in with our leaders, checking in with their, t they're checking with their tables, getting feedback from the community. Uh, and I think community management is, a, is client selection, community management. Um, and lastly, I'll just say a really fucking good product, you know, because when you have a good product, you can create a genuine level of scarcity. You don't have to use that fake shit scarcity that a lot of people would do. You know, being the first 25 bullshit, you know, you can actually create genuine scarcity if you've got a product that is that good and, you've, you, you know, you, your content in the marketplace is that great where it attracts people with such force and inertia and perhaps maybe volume. It doesn't have to necessarily be volume that, um, yeah, that makes it easier. Marie, I think, Marie, you should give some perspective on this as well because you're a big part of the, the scrutiny process. Next question. <laughs> okay. Yellow. Yellow. Uh, yellow. Yellow. Okay. Sorry. He's hey guys, here. Errol here. Oh, hey Al. How's everyone going? Yeah, good. How you Pretty doing? relaxed. I'd like a little bit of insight on kids. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now I don't kids. want the answers. Kids. Nobody's got the answers. But who's got kids? Who here's got kids? Family. Hey, that's Family our world, family. isn't it? What I'd like to know is, is that who here feels like they're not the best parent that they could be? Hang on, let's ask a different question, because I, I think we've got to be very careful with the question we ask. Who thinks occasionally, now and then, they behave in a way that may perceive themselves to not be the parent you want to be? Okay. You know, oh, I, I, I think... like your question better. That's why you get paid so much. Well, I just think yeah. Look, yeah. It's, it's important to be, you know, it's like any story you insert in your head, you've got to be really careful of the questions you ask yourself and the, the, yeah. the label, because that was quite a pervasive statement. You know, who here feels like they're, they're a bad parent? Yeah. You know, whereas if you can contextualise that and give it you know, a yeah. little less gravity, it, it's, it's not so damaging to the psychology. The, state, the statement that my wife uses is, uh, a bad moment doesn't make a bad parent. Well, the one thing I say is, is the, the, the bad parent is is the parent who thinks they're doing everything correct. The, the good parent is the one who thinks, oh, I can always do better. If you can always do better, then you are a better parent than ones that think I'm already doing it correct. And if you're, if you're, I mean, it's leadership in the end. If you're leading by that example, um, the kids need to know you're also human. You know, we're not perfect. My kids definitely know I'm not perfect. And they see that. But if, I'm, if I have a moment, you know, I always make sure that I, c I come to them later and say, you know what? That wasn't that behaviour that I expressed then was not okay. It still doesn't make what they did okay if that was the situation. But my response to that reaction wasn't okay, and you know, talk talk to that so that again, it's showing that I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm taking account for my actions. So, yeah. I've I've learned more from working with dogs and horses about kids and humans than I have probably from anything. And that's why I love Montessori because you know with. Uh, when I started working with dogs, I was very lucky that the, the dog trainer that I worked with, he was very much into uh, dog psychology. He wasn't just a, you know, a, like a, a dog trainer per se. And then I worked, I dated a, um, a girl for about four years uh, who was the, uh, the, the niece of, has anyone here heard of a guy called Pat Pirelli? Like he's one of the top horsemen, like the horse whisperers in the world. And so I actually started going through his program. And you know, what I discovered is you know, mammals 
you know, they might come in different shapes and sizes, but you know, basic operating system around herd mentality and pack mentality and hierarchical corrections is, is you know, it's very, it's very primal. It's across the board with most mammals. And so what I learned is the importance, especially with horses, the importance of the energy that you bring to the moment, dogs as well, but the energy that you bring to the moment, especially as you're training them, when you're like, as they're, they're becoming more mature, you know, because, I th and I think that's the best opportunity that you have for real parenting is, you know, the, the process from as, 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 you know, I, I love starting, if I'm, if I'm going to have a dog, I love to start training a dog at around six, you know, even at six weeks, you start giving it suggestions and commands. And, you know, I've had dogs that have been fully trained by three months to the point where they can sit, roll over, bark on command, and even attack on command at three months old. And so there's a lot of work that you can do in the earlier stage, and I think the more work you can do, the better. But as Sean was saying, I think it's about, you know, the leadership, but that's about trust. And it's not what you say that mammals, and I'm talking dogs, horses, or kids, because kids, for the most part, especially when they're young, they don't necessarily have the faculties to understand everything you're saying, but they feel your energy like, like nothing else. And so you might be saying one thing, but if you're feeling something different, they, they don't hear what you say, they, hear what, they feel what you project. And, I've just, and I learned that with horses, because you can go out with a horse and you can try to do the, you know, the same trick you did yesterday to get them to do what you wanted to do, but if you bring an energy to that space where you're off, the horse won't have a bar, won't, just won't have a bar of you. They'll just walk away. So, and I'm talking about having a relationship with a horse where you can actually walk up to a horse, stand beside it, and you can go for walks and runs, and the horse will run, step backwards and forwards, you know, you can play with each other, dance around, and literally play with it like a dog. I'm, like, have it roll it on its belly, like doing that with the horse. So when you do that with a horse, you just, it fucking blows your mind, because you're treating it like a dog. And because it's a big mammal, it's like a big fucking dog. But when you understand when the energy that you present to the you know, to the experience has such an impact on the, their ability to receive what you're saying, like in, the, in, in what you're trying to do from a training perspective. Uh, you know, I think the more conscious we are of the energy we bring to the space with kids, the better parents we will be. That's the short version. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank Fuck, you. Sorry, did we'll, I go we'll, go to, we'll go to yellow. I think we've tried, we've tried a couple of times to get to yellow. Hey, Kevin. Um, I just had a Yo. question in regards to culture. Yeah. So my question goes to the three of you. Um, so... Before you said that you treat K2 as an extension of your team, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, fantastic. But my question will go towards um, how, how do you do or how do you guys, because I know it's a teamwork, keep up the culture that you do so consistent, um, so uplifting and so forth, because, you know, in our, in our business, we are at the scale um, stage, and, I mean, you've got about 170 people here, we've got 40 guys, and we struggle like a mother. <clears throat> so, it would be really, um, I'm really interested to know how it is that you keep this consistency going. So many people. Marie? Yeah, uh, being really clear about the mission, being really aware of what the needs of the clients are, and that's through the process that we have in place, the selection criteria, also the layers of support that we have in place, and also a responsibility on the people within the program to actually ask for help. Those that ask for help receive the help. Beyond the layers of the leadership group, the check-ins on the Monday, the checkouts on the Sunday, and your leaders, there's a lot of other layers and dimensions to K2. That's how we keep the culture alive. The social contact that we have in each state, uh, the support, the sense of community, uh, and I think the communication from the team and yeah. Kerwin. And I'd say, look, there's a, and Marie really gives, I give a lot of credit to this, like the, the, the leadership that she demonstrates is relentless. Um, and both Marie and I, and also Sean as well, like 
like Sean's involved in other things, so he's not in the business as much as Marie and I, but we're quite, well, I'd say quite relentless in our approach to what it is that we do uh, and the mission. And, and that's why I think Marie and I, when we work together, we click really well. And the reason we click really well is we've both got stupidly, ridiculously high, unrealistic, delusional standards. Um, and when, those, when, when that comes together and we have this shared delusion, you know, we're able to, and when you have really high standards, you know, it allows you to create a level of consistency that most people just can't. And standards, again, it's like anything, you can choose the standard. It's just what are you willing to accept as good enough? Because you know, oftentimes, you know, if a, a, you know, a team member or a you know, community member behaves a certain way, it might be off, and you go, oh, that's a little bit off, but you might not actually say something about it. But if your standards are really high, you just address it straight away. And you just don't deal with any shit. And that's one of the most important things about maintaining a strong culture, is identifying when something's not working, and then remo removing that as quickly as possible, rather than trying to resuscitate it or incubate it, because all it's going to do is essentially turn into a virus that will just spread. And I think that's probably one of the most important things about a culture is cleansing it and keeping it clean. I might just add a little bit to the context I've seen in what Marie and Kerwin do is, it, despite the discomfort of the situation, because of that focus on the mission, it's, you just push through that discomfort, make the call and move forward. You know, it's not like, oh, do we make this decision? Do we do this? Do we do that? It's, this is the, this is the situation. This is the reality of it. This is what we need to do. Take the action, rip the band-aid off and then keep going towards the mission. Somebody? Hi, I'm awesome. Hi, awesome. Hi, awesome. I think you're awesome as well, Rachel. She's even more awesome after three glasses of champagne. She's now <laughs> fucking superwoman. Uh, <laughs> I've seen the uniform. In the, in the business sense, um, for all three of you, uh, what scares you? In the business sense? Or you can make it life if you like, apart from me. Okay, yeah, other than you. Um, Marie? Um. <laughs> uh, mine, uh, what scares me is um, people that aren't authentic. Oh, what scares me? Yeah, scares I, I, I echo that one. The one that jumped into my mind, because uh, I've done a lot of work around fear, uh, a stupid amount of work around fear, again, because having such anxiety, I was afraid of everything. Um, and I thought I'd conquered fear until my son was born and then I realised, I, was, I almost felt like I was taken back to square one because I got to a point where I wasn't really attached, uh, what I thought anyway, it was too much apart from my wife and then when my son came along it was just like this connection that I'd just never experienced before and so if there's one fear that I have it would be losing my son, yeah for sure. I'll obviously second that with anyone with kids, I think is, that's a pretty high, high fear but you know, I guess in a business context for me it would be, um, you know, something happening which didn't allow me to actually live the purpose. It took me, you know, I'm now in my 30th year of business. It took me until about seven years ago to figure out what that purpose was. And I guess on some level it's like, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a fear that, that if that was taken away, what, what would I be doing then, you know, because I know where I was and I know how much I disliked it and how much I enjoy working in, this, in, in my purpose and, and living my purpose. Um, I suppose that having that taken away is, is probably probably something that comes up as a fear. Kerwin, do you have a business-related one? Ah, I have fucked up so much shit so many times that, no, not really. Like, I'm sure if something really radical happened, yeah, I'd probably be afraid for a moment, 
but I've kind of reached that place where, and again, touch wood, um, that I've just had so much shit go wrong in business over so many years that you, you don't become numb to it, you just be, it just becomes a lot easier to deal with and regulate and that's just less of an issue. And so even when the prospect of that thing popping up comes up, you just don't respond emotionally like you used to once you've had, you know, it's, oh, oh, I actually read about this. I actually found out what the science behind this is. It's called exposure therapy. Uh, exposure therapy is what they use with astronauts in order to acclimatize them to some of the fears that they will encounter when they're going through the many different aspects of tr space travel, most of which re re relate to, um, what's that fucking fear of small spaces? Claustrophobia. Claustrophobia, you know, in space suits and, and, and small places. And, you know, exposure therapy dictates that the more, and they, they say microdosing using exposure therapy, which is essentially exactly what we talk about, which is putting yourself into a stressful situation, using the tools to regulate to the point where it feels too much, and then back off and get yourself back to completely neutral in an unstressful environment. Then when you feel competent and capable, you put yourself back in and you'll notice you'll last a little bit longer this time and then go back. And I guess with, for me with skydiving, I just I resolved so much shit with skydiving, it wasn't funny. It was, such, it was the greatest therapeutic tool that I've ever found. And I think with everything that's happened around that and since then, yeah, I just doesn't play, fear doesn't play a big part, part, part of my life, but anxiety still does in different, in different ways. Thank you. <clears throat> Sega. Hi, Kerwin, it's Kim. Hi, Kim. I uh, just want to answer Errol's uh, thing about does everyone feel like they're a bad parent? Uh, yes, we all feel like we're bad parents. Now, but we do the just, best. Again, like, Hold I, I, it, can I say something? Okay. We do the best that we can with the tools that we've got, which makes us all good parents because we care. Yeah. Nice one. Is but, there a question? Uh, now, yeah, I have okay. a question. Sorry. You guys have been in the personal development place space for a shitload of time. What's a standout, you know, something that you guys have done that's not Kerwin Ray? Like, is it, you know, half Tieker or, I don't know, the half Arrow or, mm. you know, have you got any favourites? Each one? I've got a memorable one. I don't know if it's yeah, my Yeah, something favorite. like that will do. Where, where's Jared? That's what we nicknamed Torture Camp. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I won't say who it was, okay, but um, it was a very interesting, very interesting four days of um, getting stretched outside comfort zone, being made to dance around like a fairy and stuff like that. So it was very interesting. So and that was really easy for sure. Fucking Clinton Swain. <laughs> what's your I'd, money? What's your favourite? I'd be. Uh, look, I don't actually have a favourite because I learn a lot by osmosis, and my role is not to be in the room for the content. But I've been around a lot of world class speakers, uh, but. Um, Look, I don't really have a favourite no, either. Yeah. Sorry, Kim. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Just lots of people. I think you're, you're where you're meant to be in the space and you hear what you want to hear and pursue what it is that you want to pursue. If it's a personal the journey, if it's in whatever space, just find that person. And in three days, you might only find out one thing that's going to serve you uh, to change something in your life or bring something into someone else's life. Then I'm all up for attending and continuous lifelong learning, so yeah, do I, that. Yeah, I don't know, I've just learnt so much from other aspects as well, like when I think of the most profound things that I've learnt, you know, it hasn't always been in a seminar room, um, you know, I think one of the most profound things I did that, that was, uh, when I think about what was the, one of the greatest experiences that I've had from a development perspective, and this might be a little bit left field, was uh, when I did ayahuasca. Uh, I did ayahuasca in, in England the night before I met my wife. 
um, which is interesting timing because when I did it, I actually set the intention for the journey to heal my relationship with Mother Earth and to get clear about the woman that I was supposed to meet, spend the rest of my life with. Uh, and it was the very next day I actually met my wife as a result of an incredible series of coincidences that happened that night. But um, yeah, uh, I've done a lot of meditation. You know, I've, I've actually done LSD before as well. But ayahuasca was just, it was such a profound perspective that was so completely unique and different that gave you access to so much understanding that it's almost completely hard to comprehend. Uh, it's the closest experience that I had to when I had my stroke. Because when I had my stroke, I had a moment where I, I just could think about everything, you know, anything from quantum science, mathematical, for, for everything. I was just, I was like downloading the internet. Um, and it was like very brief. And I had aspects of that from ayahuasca. And it was, it was a transformational experience for me. Go okay, yellow. Hi, Warwick here. Hey, Warwick. Um, question for the panel. <clears throat> um, if you guys had the opportunity to invite one person out to dinner, past or present, infamous oh. or famous, for three hours over a bottle of wine with great conversation, who would it be? And why? Um, I'd say Jared Leto, from, uh, he's an actor and he's also in the band 30 Seconds to Mars. Now coming from a musical background myself, what he has actually done in multiple, um, what do you call it, multiple disciplines is fucking phenomenal. You know, one role he was 90 kilos for some role, another one he was like in a, in a concentration camp and he was about 60 kilos in weight, like he, the way he plays those roles how he um, expresses himself through music and things like that. I would love to you know, spend a few hours and, and just sort of speak to someone like that, that's got that capability of doing that. I'm sure it comes with an immense amount of discipline, immense amount of you know, self-belief and a lot of other stuff, and it'd be great to understand you know, how he ticks. Cool, thank you. Oh, my um, knee-jerk reaction was Einstein, uh, and I know that sounds like a cliche, kind of statement, but I, absolutely, I think he had one of the most beautiful scientific minds because he was able to explain things in human language very simply. Uh, but if I had to choose, but then I thought about it and I thought, oh, if I only had three hours and really wanted to leverage the shit out of this opportunity and I had a magic genie, I'd probably go Napoleon Hill. Um, and the reason I say Napoleon Hill is not only because he, he, and it's not so much about the book that he wrote, but it's about the, the amount of people that he had exposure to. Uh, you know, Andrew Carnegie, who at the time in the 19, early 1900s was the most wealthiest man on the planet, um, and he formed a relationship with Napoleon Hill and gave Napoleon Hill access to the wealthiest people on the planet. And he thought it was going to be like a three, four-year project to write just the book Think and Grow Rich, let alone all the other books that came along as well. And it took 27 years before he produced this you know, piece of art where he'd identified the 13 traits that they all shared. Uh, and I just think, you know, because you could try and think, well, this person, this person, this person, but I go, if Napoleon Hill, he'd be able to give me a download on 500 fucking incredible minds, do you know what I mean? And that, to me, would just be... Awesome. And if, if, I, if I was going to be super greedy, uh, Candace Pert and Viktor Frankl. Well, me on the other hand, <laughs> it's hardly profound. Uh, but I'm actually going to live this. And I was only saying this tonight with, uh, yeah, a couple of the K2s. Uh, I said when I was 20, we did the whole table for six thing. And one of the people on my table was Bette Midler. And when I go to New York after um, the Canadian trip, I'm actually having dinner with Bette Midner and she's been on my bucket list since I was 20. <laughs> Make shit happen. That's it. All right. Uh, let's go. We'll go over here, the blue hat. 
It's, uh, yeah, Phil, I'm still here. Hey, Phil, still. Hello. Oh, I missed you. It uh, takes me back to my boarding school days when we were uh, pulling up um, a bit of carpet to watch the, the Saturday night movie, but there was a lot more action uh, than uh, the <laughs> academic talk here tonight. It's, a, it's uh, night still young. <laughs> it could be the Ellen DeGeneres show, couldn't it? With, uh, especially if Marie had a different uh, coloured hairstyle. But I would like to get a bit deeper into a, an emotion that's, that's uh, not respected these days and that is that emotion of forgiveness and I remember watching on an online, uh, it was a talk, a video talk day Podcast. when you were doing a coaching call in your earlier days, Kerwin, right. and, and anyhow we discussed the, this emotion of forgiveness and you said that you could find it in your heart to forgive even the most heinous of criminals that have done the most heinous of crimes. We were talking about the terrorists that had done horrible things and killed you know, many, many hundreds of people. And even if they'd committed a, a horrible, heinous crime on your family, that you could find a room in your heart to, to find that amazing emotion of, of, of forgiveness. And I was just wondering whether you could delve deeper into that. Um, please tell me he's not, he's asking me? Okay. Was that me or Marie? Well, I thought that the three but you were the one that were, um, you were the one that was, uh, okay. originally speaking uh, about look, it. Look, I've had an interesting relationship with forgiveness. It's, it's been, um, something that I've worked a lot with in a range of different areas for a range of different reasons. Um, I, I am would like to think I'm a fairly forgiving kind of guy for the most part. Um, I'm still embracing different aspects of forgiveness in different areas. But for me, forgiveness is more, it's less about forgiveness and more about acceptance. And I just feel lucky that I've just made so many bad decisions in my life uh, that I've lived uh, to see the other side of that give me a perspective that those things can't, if, you know, if I was, if I was to be defined by those acts, then, you know, I, I probably wouldn't be a very liked person. Because you know, I'm sure we've all done, has anyone here ever done stupid shit that if the whole world see you'd be you know, afraid of how you might be perceived? Like, we've all done it, right? Um, so for me, I find it's a lot easier to accept people. And as I said, acceptance and forgiveness to me are, are, are almost interchangeable. Because, you know, again, when you don't forgive someone, you're, there, there's some aspect or some polarity that's, you know, out of balance and there's a charge that's being held on to. Um, but for me, as I said, because I've just done so much stupid shit, I find it a lot easier to accept I've got a friend who's in jail right now serving time for attempted murder. Um, you know, the, he was actually one of the key people that taught me unconditional love. You know, when he, uh, and this guy was like the, the most least likely guy you would ever assume would commit, commit a, a, a crime, let alone a violent crime. Like he was just not that guy, not that profile, not under any circumstances, had a brain snap, you know, and um, stabbed someone, you know, a couple dozen times. They, everyone lived, no one died, which is, which is great, but everyone, flee, everyone fleed him. Like, no one wanted any, like most people didn't want anything to do with him and there was like seven of us that just stuck by him and, and it wasn't so much that we uh, approved of what he did as much as we knew that that act didn't define him and we knew that there was more to this guy than just this act um, and it was a mental fuck, a mind fuck for easily eight months for me going through the process of wanting to judge him and wanting to expel him from my life and you know, thinking to myself, what if it was my relation or what if it was my you know uh, sibling or child that he had done that to and I really had to 
think about it in so many different scenarios and it just gave me the opportunity to balance out each perspective and just look at the balance in each perspective and just really seek it out. And I really give a lot of credit for teaching me how to love genuinely and unconditionally. And I, I think once we learn how to accept people, you know, regardless of how they might behave, the easier it is to forgive because I think ex forgiveness is just another expression for, for, for acceptance. So, um, yeah. But, you know, now I have a son. If something were to happen to him, you know, I... I I would like to think that I could, you know, balance it quickly, but, you know, kids bring up emotional stuff. So, is that, was that footage from a pre-Noah state? Was that like from a couple of years ago? 18 months, I would suggest. Okay. Yeah, I probably have a little charge around if something happened to my son, but I, I still think it's something, God forbid, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, and I wouldn't especially want to bring it on myself just to prove that I could. Um, but I'd like to think that I've been through enough adversity that I'd be able to balance that out, de depending on how long it might take. Because you can see, you've seen, uh, I've seen parents face their, the, the, killers, the killer of their, their daughter or their son, and after the, the court process, some you know, years later, they've found it in themselves to find forgiveness for that person, and I'm always amazed at how someone could reach that, that level of acceptance. Look, I think it's possible, and I, I think, you know, otherwise, what, is, what do we perpetuate? We, we perpetuate the hate, and um, there's always going to be a balance. There's always going to be light. There's always going to be dark. Uh, it's just choosing the expression of the form. You know, we all have a... And I think this is really important for all of us to know. We all have a dark side, and, you know, this reflects in whether we're being a bad parent in that moment or a bad husband. Or, we've got both sides, but what we have is the ability to choose how those sides get expressed uh, and at what levels and, you know, I suppose intensities they get, they get expressed. But I think, you know, the, the world could certainly do with a little less judgment and a little more acceptance. Okay, we'll go yellow. Hey, guys. Um, pretty good idea, this, isn't it? It's pretty relaxed. You guys um, like this? Yeah, yeah I, 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 I like this it. Great idea. I think it's a good idea. I, um, on the other hand, am extremely no, anxious. No, she doesn't <laughs> like, you love it. You're loving it. I can, oh, I can see a few hands going up. I'm a bit yeah. nervous. So I'm going to direct this question to you, Marie. No. <laughs> okay, I invited that. Knock yourself no. out, Alex. <laughs> it's really to anyone. It's around parenting. And um, again, I had a situation where I bought a ticket to Nissi and um, I, I, I couldn't... I've got three kids and I think any of them really would have benefited to some degree from the experience even if it was just, you know, a couple of days out, basically. You know, they might have been bored by some of it, but I think they would have got something out of it. And um, anyway, I, when I got home, I said, you know, you, you, I said to them, without trying to um, extend guilt upon them, but at least to say that I thought that their judgment around that was poor. And, um, you know, they, I think they felt remorse, but it probably only lasted about 30 milliseconds. And after that, it's sort of washed over. Have you thought about what your recommendations are around kids coming to something like Nissi? Or We've had uh, How old are your kids? I've got a 12-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old son. Well, we've had, I think, what's the youngest we've had? Cody, 11. 11. So, Cody, yeah, shit. Cody was 11 and he came through, created e-books that he's now pushing online. Uh, he did a big fundraiser as well to, yeah, he, he used a lot of stuff to raise money, uh, sell ebooks, yeah. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'm, we're fine having kids in as, 
as long as it's a you know it's accompanied by an, um, <laughs> adult supervision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I get, I get that. Um, have you disclaimer. got any suggestions around <laughs> and a kids swearing disclaimer? Can be. Oh, look, my kids. I'm sure they've heard ears cool. Don't worry about yeah. it. Um, but uh, have you got any suggestions around how y you could encourage or uh, you know just engender a bit of interest in something like that? Find out what their values are. Find one of my videos that relates to one of their values and show them one of my videos that they might be interested in. Okay. Thanks for that. You're welcome. All right. In the middle. Hello, I'm Shona. Hey, Shona. Hi. Um, I've got a question for Marie. Sorry, to, Marie, to put you in the limelight. It's okay. <laughs> um, I know in the past you've said you've worked with some pretty... Can, can you lift the mic a bit? It's really hard Sorry. to hear because the speaker... Can you hear me now? Before. There we go. That's better. Thanks. I know in the past you've said you've worked with some pretty cool people. Um, one of them being, uh, what's that No Limits guy with the Nick, no... Nick Wojcik. Nick? Nick, yeah. yeah. Oh. No arms, no legs, no worries? Yes, that's yep. it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the title of his book. <laughs> oh, I can really tell you a story. Oh, God, I knew this was going to come out. I want to hear it. No, 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 ask the question. Okay, it's okay. so, um, just a question about... Um, no offence to Kerwin, because I think you're awesome, Kerwin. Like, we're in the program. We love you. There's a big world out there. It's <laughs> um, so what made you choose to work with Kerwin? Oh, from uh, the other big names you've been with, and obviously you're very good at what you do, so you could have chosen any number of people, I imagine, to work with. So. <laughs> I'll see it. I wanted a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> And I was basically desperate, so... <laughs> uh, the truth is, and I know I told this story um, to crew ago, but I'll condense it. Uh, the truth is I'm in a lot of rooms. I've been doing this for a long time. And as I said, I learn by osmosis, but I rarely stop and sit. In fact, I don't think I've ever sat in a room that I've been supporting until I heard Kerwin. And I stopped and I sat down and I actually... Do you know this story, Kerwin? No, I oh. And I um, stopped and I listened. It was only for five minutes, but that's all I needed because it's that energy and you get that sense that, well, this guy is quite genuine. What he's saying seems to make sense. So I actually embarked on a covert, and a, a, and a covert operation for about a year of stalking Kerwin. And he knows this part. I went on his um, testimonial reels and I called three people. I called a male, a female and a couple. I went on and got their numbers and I called them and I asked them three questions. Uh, if you work with Kerwin and implement, does what Kerwin teach work? Is Kerwin genuine and authentic because that's how Kerwin comes across? And the third question I asked, if I was to work, and two people didn't know Kerwin, but one did, and the third, the third person, Simon, uh, I actually said to him, I'm, I'm going to approach Kerwin because he needs me. And do you think that we would be able to work together? And he actually said to me, you guys are like twins. It would be a match made in heaven. <laughs> so uh, I watched Cohen for a year in the green room, behind the stage, on the stage, because I needed to test for myself. Because I was at a point in my career where I was a bit jaded by the industry. And I know there's a few people in the room that will know what I'm saying when I say that. 
So it was the authenticity, how genuine Kerwin was, and I was actually drawn to Kerwin. Uh, but I take a while to process things. Uh, so it did take me a year because I knew it would be a bit of a shift and I knew I'd have to give up something that I loved. Uh, and in the first year that I was with Kerwin, I actually maintained essentially both, mm. uh, both roles. So I continued to do what I was doing and just gradually started to fade back and just naturally was drawn more to Kerwin, Sean uh, and the team. And I've never looked back and it's with much gratitude that I rang Kerwin and told him that he needed me and he <laughs> realised that he did. Uh -huh. <laughs> and yeah. And it's been a match made in heaven. And Marie, just quickly, what was the, what, what opportunity was the five minute sit down? Was it one of Kerwin's conferences or? Uh, I was at a multi-speaker event and Kerwin was just one of the many speakers that was speaking at that event. Cool, thank you. And what about the Nick story? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I can't. Yellow. <laughs> Sorry. Hi, Kerwin. Hi, guys. Diego here. Hey! Diego. About fucking time, bro. Too much pressure. <laughs> All right, um, Kerwin, um, in social media, how much is too much to share in terms of competition? Um, yeah, how much do you, do you reckon is too much to share when is your secret or... or, or what you consider no your, or, or no secret, but what you consider your key different point of, of, of your competition. It's gonna be such a boring answer. It's got nothing to do with how much you produce and everything to do with what you produce. So I don't think it's a question of can you produce too much because if it's good content it's being consumed, no. You know, if it's good content and people are consuming it and engaging with it, liking it, sharing, commenting on it, um, then no, you can't, you know, you can't publish too much content. Now, I think there are certain thresholds that platforms have, um, like I've observed on Facebook, uh, looking across a range of different sites that publish anywhere between you know, 15 times a week up to 250 times a week. Um, and you know, there is a, a declining rate of engagement once you get up to the 250 posts per week, because that is a high frequency, uh, that's a high publishing frequency for any platform, but especially Facebook. But when you look at it in any space, again, it's, it's mostly irrelevant, because when you look at the people that publish good content, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk's a great example because he publishes a, a more original content than any other personal brand on the planet um, and it just constantly moves and constantly grows. So it's not about how much, it's about the quality of the content. But, yeah, but no, I didn't mean about that quantity. I mean, if you have any intellectual things that you don't share for that fear that you're going to be copied. No. By others, is, is oh, what I mean. Yeah, it's, it's like a how much no, to... I'm less scared about being copied. I'm not, because everybody copies me anyway. Fucking hell, I've trained most of my competition and of all of them. I have people ripping me off on a daily basis. It is what it is, you know. Um, and if it gets bad, we, you know, we, 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 we send a letter. But um, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more concerned about conserving the, the, the key secrets for you guys uh, and at a, you know, at, at a lesser degree to, to, to the Nissi graduates than just giving it all. So I'm, you know, for me, my threshold of what I share comes down to saving the, the very, very, very best for you guys and, you know, and some of the really, really, really good stuff also for, for Nail and Scarlet as well. But you can ask Matias so many times where I've gone, oh shit, that's, 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 it. that's, my, that's everything in, of that. 
And we're like, yeah. And I'm like, fuck. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, fucking give it away. Just give it away. Yeah. And I just put out publish it. All right. Thank you, mate. You're welcome. Yeah, Sega. Hi, it's Dr. K. Hey, Dad. Um, okay. hey. I'm intrigued. Where did K2 come from? It's a name. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Uh, the K2 was a name that I started to, a, a label that I started to throw around when I met my wife. Because uh, uh, she's Kristen, I'm Kerwin, there was two Ks, we were K squared, and we, we, we talked about being um, an incredible force together. Uh, and then um, when I, I just started, the, the name just stuck in my head. And then as, we, as I started to develop K2, uh, I started to look at what, what's, a, what's a name that I can apply to this program that's really going to kind of, you know, capture what it is that I'm trying to do. Because the, the thing is, I'm not, I don't want to be the guy that does everything. You know, that's why we have the leadership program, so that the leaders can do some of the lifting as well and they can, you know, have that reciprocal reward. So for me, um, it was how can I multiply myself within a community that allows the information to flow down at, you know, at a, at a standard that is high enough to actually induce transformation. And that's where K-squared came in, which is, you know, basically Kerwin-squared, which is you guys. Hi, I'm Dominic. Um, with the last um, mastermind, I had the pleasure of Sean helping me with that. And, um, so you got uh, smashed? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but but I, th I think the one thing I realised is that I had to sit down and actually reflect on, and I've spent today looking at accomplishments and learnings, and I spent a lot of the last three months, I guess, allowing myself to, to, to reward myself for the things that I've done and, and achieved, but also recognise some of the tough decisions I've, I've made in the learnings. Um, I'd really love to hear from each of you what is an accomplishment and what is a learning that each of you have had in the last 12 months. A major accomplishment yep. or a major learning? You can go. You can go. <laughs> <laughs> but we haven't done much. All right. uh, I'd say a major accomplishment for me and, and, uh, and was, you know, there was a, a, quite a traumatic period over December, you know, November and December, as we know, with um, you know, losing one of our K2s, Jackie. Um, also had my best mate, you know, who was my um, best man at my wedding, try to kill himself. We lost another client, and uh, you know, one of our other former K2s, you know, fathers passed away quite young from cancer in a very short space of time. That there were a lot of blessings in there. I know that a lot of people have got a lot of blessings, you know, from that some, some of those situations and, and lessons and things like that as well that have come from it. And my accomplishment was the I woke up literally on the morning of the 23rd of December, and I felt my head and my heart go click and actually connect. Like, it's been there for years and years. I've been trying for it, searching for it to connect this and this, and it's always, it's like that plug that's not quite plugged in, you know, and it's like chit, chit, and it finally just went click. And it was the same day I went, well, I'm now doing intermittent fasting. It wasn't like I'm gonna try it. I just made that decision. And it, from that day forward, I did that, and other things changed as well. I started to unwind from things in the last six months that I've been involved in, I'd said yes to. And so the lesson I learned about that was, uh, and there was a lesson also in that accomplishment as well, which is that um, I really started to value and, and I suppose speak from here versus speaking from here. And the difference in you know, speaking from stage or even just speaking one-on-one -on -one and communicating 
it's like it's like even more of the little bit of ego that was left sort of dissipated and that got taken over by by speaking from here so that journey those challenges and things I really saw the the lessons come from that in that it is more about you know being humble and being um, you know just just serving from the heart and speaking from the heart so that's mine definitely the biggest ones in the last 12 months nice Marie uh, I would say visibility because uh, I am prone to hiding. Uh, so coming out from behind back of stage um, and I think just declaring that is a lesson learned. Uh, my accomplishment, it's actually really small and very simple. I'm a, I, I, the simple things in my life are probably the most rewarding. Uh, going from wearing a college shirt to a t-shirt on stage was the big thing, massive. Because it was almost like, I'd, it was that last thread of holding on to an identity that wasn't me. And then when I stepped into that, so many fucking other things in my life just went and It was a fucking t-shirt. I was just wearing a fucking t-shirt. It just had this ripple effect that affected every area of my life. And it was astounding what came from it. Astounding, just from a fucking t-shirt. Yeah. Hi, Sharon here. Um, hey, Sharon, firstly, man. thanks for such a lovely evening. It's great. Um, I've got a question. I want to know if there's, this is for all of you, if there's been one book um, that you would say had an impact and changed your life, what would that have been? Absolutely. My, my favourite, Quiet by Susan Cain. Um, it's, it's about introversion and it really got me to understand that when I do go and hide and sit in the toilet for 15 minutes when I don't actually need to go, that that's actually quite normal, you know, for an introvert to just not, not have that stimulation anymore, you know, like you, you, you just can't talk to people anymore, you need to defrag a bit and then you can come back out and be strong again, you know, things like that. So that was a, that was a really powerful book for me. Money? Fuck, so many, right? Yeah. There's got to be one, Marie. Come on now. I, I, can, I, like, I, I can think of a couple that are really powerful. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, fuck. Marie? <laughs> oh, gosh. I was just about to rattle off uh, all of Richard... Like, everything that Richard Bandler and John Grinder wrote... Yes. Fucking incredible. Absolutely incredible. They wrote a whole... Most of their stuff is out of publish now. Uh, anything that Eric, Mil uh, Eric Milton wrote... Uh, Milton's, Milton's... What's his name? Milton Erickson. Anything he wrote was incredible. Um, but if there's one book that I think of that I draw on, more than anything, if I go back to this, my go-to book, uh, is The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. Great. Uh, I, I think he's the modern-day Buddha. I, there's no question in my mind. He's the reincarnate of Buddha. He's, he's the one. That's great. All right, I'll give you one, Sharon. Fantastic. Stephanie Dowrick, Forgiveness and Other Acts of Love. Oh. Thanks, Marie. Right, Thank you. go... Blue. Hello, Suzanne here. Hey, Suzanne. Um, to do with children, really, uh, what piece of advice would you give your children? Don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> 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 you guys... You, you, you. So, so any, any, no, any, no context? Just no any, any advice? What no, advice? One, one piece of advice that you'd love to give your children about life. Hmm. Wow. Oh. My mine is live fully. 
for, for my son. I'd, I'd have to say, um, similar, on a similar line to Marie, it's, it's about and what I you know, instill in my kids as much as possible and some of those bad moments that we have, Errol, you know, so, and I think that I'm doing that is to ensure that they do not dim their light. Uh, mine would be find what you're here, find what you're here to do. And do not stop until you find it. Uh, yellow, Dean. Hi, Dean. Um, hey, Dean. Hello. Um, I'm always reminded of a, a, a little picture I've seen on Facebook from time to time. It's a picture of an empty bench on a cliff staring out towards the ocean and the horizon. And it says, in 25 words or less, if what would, you give, what would be your best piece of advice to your younger self 25, 30 years ago? Don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> oh, gosh. You, want to, you go. <laughs> um, best piece of advice. Trust it will be okay. Trust it will work out. Mm. You know, just trust that it will work out. You know, it, and, it, and it always does. Irrespective of what it looks like in the moment. Yeah, I, I would say be authentic and practice forgiveness. And I would say find what you're here to do and do not stop until you find it. <laughs> Red. Oh, hi. Um, I'm Rick. Hey, Rick. Hey, Rick. Um, so having done so many um, different businesses, um, have you ever had an experience where the uh, the partnership breakdown or even um, like um, uh, yes. being betrayed <laughs> oh, and what's the quickest way, what's the best way to uh, recover from it and move on? Uh, I had 11 business partners in seven years. That would probably tell you, I've learnt, hopefully, oh, it took me about seven years to learn a lesson. Um, the, early on it was very challenging with a lot of emotion, but I learnt quite quickly that by having the proper structure in place, the legal agreements and things like that, it gave the ability to exit somebody whilst there was still emotion and things like that, particularly from them, um, that having that structure there to exit them, you've just got to rip the band-aid off because the longer, it, longer a bad partnership goes on, the worse it gets and the harder it's going to be to, to disentangle yourselves. You know? It's like any relationship, you know, marriage or whatever, the, the further it goes, the, deep, the worse it gets. You know, and I watched you know, my own parents, 10 years probably longer than what they should have been together and the fight that it created in, 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 in that separation was, was humongously traumatic for everybody and so same as in a partnership in a business, I think it's very, very similar and it's, it's about if you need to get out, get out, get the space, you know, if you want to talk to somebody about that, talk to Dr. K, you know, she's gone through a challenging situation, talk to Carl, you know, they've gone through some challenging situations recently that have a lot of um, value in that as well. And come out on and top. And come out absolutely so much further on top. And not like, and it wasn't like anyone else came out on the bottom, but they just came out so much, like, yeah. yeah. It just frees you to be you, right? You're not being held back by an anchor. So, yeah. What was the question again? Like, what was the question again, Rick? Real... How you deal with oh, the business, business partner breaking, breaking down? Um, I've had uh, maybe half a dozen business partnerships that have broken down. Um, in my younger years, I did not deal with it very well at all. Uh, in fact, I held on to probably even a little bit of trauma around it because there was one partnership breakdown that was really quite um, traumatic because I'd built this business from 400,000 to 8 million. I'd done it 
you know, I won't say single-handedly, but I put an enormous amount of load in to do this, uh, and then I basically got screwed out of the company when I was actually a, uh, an equity. I was on. I had an, anyway. I won't go into the details, but the the way I got over it was actually um, there was a book called The Brain That Changes Itself, uh, written by I think it was John Grinder or Richard Bandler, or actually no, it was a collaboration. It was both, and I actually started to learn a process uh, called the Swish Pattern. And what I basically had to do was deal with the, 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 the breakdown, which was there was, this, uh, there was this meeting where the shit just went sideways, and I left there after everything had gone bad, and I couldn't get that moment out of my head. Does this make sense? And that moment kept sabotaging me as I was moving forward. So I had to, keep, I had to basically go back to that moment and repattern what happened that moment, essentially change the memory. You know, I literally had to go through and reprogram the memory and rechange the memory just by tweaking different aspects and focusing on different things and you know, it essentially enabled me to mute all emotional charge that was connected to that experience so that I could move forward. Um, that's one, but another, it's just, yeah, just to echo Sean's advice, just find a way to move forward in the best, you know, in, in the nicest and kindest possible way because I think the longer you stay in a bad relationship, the worse that it gets. But there's always... But this is what's interesting when it comes to relationships. You can tell a lot about someone by the way that they start a relationship and by the way that they finish a relationship. And like I always, wherever possible, I always try, you know, obviously we don't stay with in relationships where they didn't start well, sometimes we do. But I think also if a relationship's going to come to an end, like I, I like to make sure that ideally you get to a point where, you know, you can leave without there being any emotional charge. You know, nobody has to lose when a relationship ends. But, um, you know, some people just don't know how to end relationships well. And that all they know how to do is, you know, do it badly, you know, and that sometimes that involves, you know, creating a perspective that justifies the position that they have in order to rationalise the emotional charge and the things that they say and, you know, what they want to do, if that makes sense. And you just got to learn how to deal with that and sometimes eat, learn, learn how to enjoy the taste of a shit sandwich and, you know, keep moving through it. Blue. Hi, I'm Sam. Hey, hey Sam. Sam. Is there a health and wellness tool or practice that you're curious about that you've not tried yet and you would like to try? Zin Shitsu. <laughs> Is that what it's called? Jin. Jin No, not Jin. Oh. <laughs> That's for later. She's fluent on it. Yeah, no, I did do it when I was in Byron Bay. I, I was telling someone today, where's Amanda? Who was out there? Amanda and Nicole. I did that Zen... Shih Tzu thing, and this chick walks into my room, right? <laughs> and yeah. I, I, I paid for this one. This is what yeah, I know you did. I'm uh, like, hang well, on, can I set the pre-frame? Oh, preferably, okay. Because I said, I've got you, Matt. I said, Marie, no. I've got your massage, and she's like, oh, ha, ha, ha. I said, no, no, seriously, I've got you our massage, <laughs> and she's like, no, you didn't, and we're like, ha, 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 and off she went, and then <laughs> this woman walked into my room. Wearing like the Kathy Freeman outfit, and all I could see was like, I'm being serious, like her face, and it was totally like black and stuff. Like a Teletubby. It was like a Teletubby. <laughs> and I had to lie on the floor, and this particular practice is like body, do you know it, Sam? Like body movement, her body movement, no. my body through my body. <laughs> I don't. Kahuna. It's fucking, I don't know yeah, what it is, kahuna. but. <laughs> yeah, it was Kahuna. I got a Kahuna massage, that's right. All I know is, I wasn't sure at the end of it, Rach, if I needed to file a police report. <laughs> or book another one! <laughs> <laughs> so I booked another one. Yeah.
<laughs> oh, yeah, Kerwin. Thank you very much. I'm not going to bother trying to follow that one. <laughs> please, uh, please give us one if you can. One. So Just one, one health practice. For some strange masochistic reason, I think I actually want to try a seven-day water fast with, you know, to go to Thailand and actually try that um, to see to see the, the actually like that, that in-depth cleansing and stuff. I've found a lot of benefit now from the in intermittent fasting, so that'd be like a whole another freaking level, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> that'd be very interesting to to try that. Uh, for me, I'm really interested to explore stem cell therapy. Uh, I have a number of injuries in my body that. Um, I'm finding it uh, a little bit challenging to deal with. One of the reasons that I'm slimming down so much now at a muscular level and also at a fat level is one, I can't train, but I'm also you know, doing the intermittent fasting schedule as a way to heal a lot of you know, injuries and things that I've got going on. So for me, I'm really keen to look at, because stem cell therapy in Australia is so fucking infant, uh, where it was in Germany and Israel and other places, that the, the, the stuff that they're doing with stem cell technologies off the planet, it's incredible. Uh, so, yeah, I'm really, I think stem cell therapy shows a lot of promise for a whole range of different reasons. Uh, and I'd love to, you know, I'd love to be involved in, you know, playing with it. Um, and by playing with it, I don't mean irresponsibly. I mean, you know, doing it in, in an intelligent way because everything I've read, a lot of the stuff that I've seen coming from intelligent sources, not, you know, uh, propaganda or political agenda sources, uh, it, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, I think it's one of the greatest discoveries that we've probably had in the last hundred years when it comes to health uh, and being able to... to to repair and rebuild the body. Cool, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, where the, wherever you see a hat. Yellow. Ken. Hey, Cohen, Sean, and Marie. Can you share a thought or idea that you have obsessed about or one that might have kept you up at night? You can. <laughs> is, this, is this a, a, a G-rated show? I don't know. No, an, an actual thought or an idea that you've obsessed about. <laughs> oh, something that keeps something that keeps us up at night. Mm. Fuck, I don't sleep anyway, so uh, just going to bed. I yeah, I don't need anything in my mind not to. to I just. Oof. Fuck. I think it changes. You know, for me, you know, coming from a, a background of having anxiety, clinical depression and things like that in different times, different things would actually keep me awake at night, you know, for different reasons. Some of them are real, some of them weren't. Um, so I don't know, in a general sense, probably not a lot now, again, going through that almost 30 years of fucking up in business and, and, and learning through that, that, really learning through that and then just learning how to push through and stuff. I don't know, there's not a lot in that, in that way that does keep me up, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm struggling to think of something. Uh, like whenever I have something that causes a level of anxiety that I know is going to affect parts of my life, I just go straight to my chiropractor and I get like uh, an NET session, which is a, a neuroemotional technique or a release tapping technique. And um, yeah, I don't know, like anything that, I don't know, like I just, I, I know myself well enough to know that when I produce an energy that is going to fuck with me, that I just immediately seek a resolution. Like I'm always, like if I feel a charge that builds up in me for any reason, I'll, I'll just go and seek resolution through some form of therapy, meditation. Uh, I use um, uh, also an IMRS mat, which is uh, essentially a technology that was developed by NASA 
uh, for astronauts who spend extended periods of time in space and when they come back, because when you're in the outer space, your body is exposed to different frequencies of electromagnetism. Your body's been tuned uh, based on the Earth's polarity to essentially uh, maintain a certain uh, calibration based on the frequency that you're exposed to here. When you're out of space, it puts your frequency out, but now because we have so much uh, electromagnetic uh, pollution around us, our frequencies can be put off, our organ frequencies, any frequency of the body can be put off just by you know, just general exposure to uh, EMFs and that kind of thing. So for me, if I, if I can't sleep, I'll go and sit on, on the mat. And what the mat does is it essentially resonates at the Earth's core, en uh, core energy field. Um, and you jump on it for like eight minutes, 16 minutes, plus it has a brain entrainment system which you put on with your eyes. And you know, it really does essentially harmonize. It's like a tuning fork for the body. And any charge, and I've, this is incredible, like when you have charges that are sometimes stored in the body, like an emotional charge that's essentially moving into an organ or moving into a physical charge. Because that's the thing, an emotional charge will often park itself somewhere. And when it's an emotional charge, that's when you want to release it from the body before it parks itself, because it's when it parks itself, it creates a blockage and problems. And so for me, I, you know, I'll use MRS mat a lot when I'm feeling out of balance just to tune myself if, I'm, you know, if there's something keeping me up. Different question, a different answer, I should say. All right, Jewel, sorry. Yellow. Is it? Julie. Hi, Julie here. Do you think that near-death experiences happen for a reason? And, and if they do, what would it be apart from the obvious you've just died, nearly died and, and not? But is there something else that you can think that there's a reason why some people have that and then come back? I think a near-death experience is a very personal thing. And it's like anything, we, we can choose any meaning that we want. And I, I think that's the beautiful thing about the human experience, especially with the neocortex and our ability to define and label and choose. Um, you know, for me personally, I, I found it very easy to label it and to choose it was a very good thing from the moment of the onset. From the moment I looked down and saw drool just flooding down my chest, I just knew in my, I just in the moment framed it in my mind that this is a great thing, this is a good thing, something great is happening right now. Enjoy this, relax, lean into it, just relax and go with it rather than fight it. So, you know, in all the, that was probably the most dramatic near-death experience because that was the one that um, was the most different. Um, you know, I got stabbed, I almost drowned, I, I got shot at on the door, got a gun from Every one of those have, have different kind of uh, effects as a result of, you know, what the consequences of that experience. I think in the earlier near-death experiences, I, I didn't ha associate any meaning to it, much other than that I was just in a really, uh, I was just, uh, yeah, just in a really violent context and a violent community and a, and a violent kind of, um, yeah, I just was in a really, I just went through a period where I hung out with a lot of very bad people. And so it was hard to define a context at that point other than just thinking that this was normal. And as I matured and had other experiences and became more conscious, then I was able to really understand the purpose of what I believe a near-death experience is for, is to create humility um, and to also awaken, you know, and awaken you to, and wake you up to, you know, a higher level of understanding or a higher perspective based on the, 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 the imminent threat of death. I think death is an incredible teacher. You know, you know, the, book, the book of Tibetan dying is, you know, we've got to really truly die if we want to completely and fully live. And when you hear that statement, it's very hard to understand. But when you nearly die a few times and you start to grasp with the concept and you really grasp the concept of dying, and skydiving is, is great for this as well, um, you really start to realise that what, most of our fears are rooted in some form of channel that will ultimately lead to, what does that mean, what does that mean, what does that mean, what does that mean? Death. And when you can conquer the fear of death through near-death, and again, microdosing, I do, you know, um, uh, uh, exposure therapy, I've been exposed to near-death on a number of occasions now, 
Uh, and as a result, it's enabled me to, you know, essentially produce a, a, a relationship with fear that I guess is, is very different and a meaning that, you know, might be abstract to how others might put it together depending on their situation. So we should probably do something soon. We should. Should we do like one more, two, two more questions? Are you guys still enjoying this? Yeah. Okay. So Jesse, have you got, I can't see the hats. Okay, I'll go blue hat there. Okay. I was actually wanting to ask the same question as Julie was asking. Um, in your near-death experience, do you actually ex experiencing yourself um, lifting up from your body or do you see some um, I, I light? I only had one time? NDE that was even remotely something like that. Every other NDE was literally uh, like just extreme uh, stimulus. So it was like you know, being shot at, being stabbed, having a gun to your mouth, you know, almost drowning. Um, those things are quite intense. When I had the stroke, that was the closest thing to what is considered an NDE. I didn't raise out of my body. Uh, I've, I've told the story quite a few times before. I basically, I drooled on myself, I blacked out, I, I essentially started to, what I thought was tune into the mobile phone network because I heard about 100 conversations overlapping going on at once and then I heard one dominant voice that was carrying on and then all of a sudden I went to this new place where everything I thought of made complete sense and then I went to this other place where I was given a choice and it wasn't a, Cohen, you have a choice, you can say, it was just this conscious awareness of you can stay or you can go and I remember just going, you know what, I'm happy to, I'm happy to go, I've, had, I've lived like fucking 20 lives and I was only 34 at this point and I honestly believed at that age, I was like, dude, I've lived like fucking 20 lives, if I go now, there's no shame, like, you've lived a good life and then I'm, I just woke up. Um, so I didn't like see fucking the tunnel or light, I didn't see God standing there welcoming his arms and I didn't rise above my body and see my fat self. And I wasn't too fat, I was actually in really good shape when I had a stroke. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, unfortunately not that exciting. Yeah, thank you. Right, Janie. Was red. G'day guys, how are you? Hey mate. Good. Hey, um, I've got, uh, Pete, sorry, how are you? Hey mate. Um, yeah, I've been diagnosed with ADDs from, obviously when I was a kid, sorry about that. And um, always been Dexys, but I've stopped taking Dexys when I was quite young to figure out how else I can medicate it. Mm -hmm. And talking to quite a few people in here, I'm hearing there's a few things, but I want to ask you, Kevin, what have you done? Uh, meditation is a big one for me. Uh, routine is also really important, and structure, focusing on things that you really enjoy. When you're ADHD, ADHD is a, is a heightened sensitivity to boredom in my opinion, because you get bored super quick unless it super engages you. So for me, it's about choosing the things that super engage you. Uh, do you experience manic levels of ADD? Uh, what do you mean by that? Sorry, manic, what do you mean by manic that? levels of ADD is where you become almost obsessive compulsive because you're moving so quickly and your brain works so hard and you get into adrenaline and cortisol and, and then all of a sudden it's almost like a, a mild version of bipolar where you get you know, really up and then all of a sudden you start to have a little bit of a crash. Yeah, I get about two good hours a day. Okay. So something that I've also uh, played with is CBD oils, so cannabis oils. Uh, CBD oils work, can, can actually be quite helpful, depending on the severity of ADHD. Um, also, you might want to look at a, a CBD THC or THCA uh, tincture, which, you know, typically, and again, it's very, I think cannabis is very misunderstood, especially at a therapeutic level. You know, there are different formulations of, 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 of THC or different varieties of THC that have you know, a wide range of medicinal properties. Uh, when you look at the strains of um, sativa, as an example, you've got two basic strains in cannabis. You've got sativa and you've got indica. Indica is used you know, for a lot of heavy pain. 
Uh, it's great for cancer patients. It's you know, great for stimulating appetite. You know, it's great for uh, epilepsy and uh, some forms of autism and even you know, multiple sclerosis and you know, other things like that. And whereas if you've got, it's a heavier compound. And that's typically the experience that most people have when they you know, have an experience with cannabis. They smoke it and they fall asleep because they had some engineered product that was designed just to knock you fucking out. Whereas you've got the other end of the spectrum, which is a sativa. Sativa has uh, more um, cerebral properties and it has the ability, because it has a higher CBD content, it has the ability to actually calm the brain, but actually maintain a high level of alertness. Um, so I, 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 I don't necessarily do that, but I have tried that in the past, and I've found it to be you know, quite, quite effective. No worries here. I'll keep trying anyway. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Is that it? All right. I suppose we should probably... No, tomorrow. Let's give tomorrow one, and then we'll, then we'll wrap it up. Hey, um, my hey, question Ken. is around how you guys celebrate your wins because uh, since joining K2, we've kind of experienced a few and we always seemed to celebrate with alcohol or going out for dinner and we're kind of getting a bit fat and drunk. So how do we, uh, what do you guys celebrate? How do you guys celebrate your, your wins and uh, yeah. what are some ideas? We are so boring. Are we boring? No? Sometimes. I think expressions of uh, appreciation and acknowledgement, because that's really important. We, and I think we do that really well. I know that we do that really well. So that's a win within itself. We, yeah, I think we celebrate wins by... We don't, we're not a drinking culture in our organisation at all. Um, I think the last, we had a beer night the other night, which was the first one in a while. It's not that the team don't go out and drink occasionally, it's just not the culture. You know, we're a high-performance culture and that's reflected in everyone's behaviours. Um, but we'll, we'll do it, often do an activity or something, you know, go out together as a team. But I think the celebration is really in the way yeah. that we um, acknowledge effort. Like, whenever someone does something, we're, like, the team erupts. You know, if anyone in the office at any time has a win, the whole team will erupt into applause. And that happens multiple times, multiple, multiple times a day. So, you know, we, we're very tuned into... You know, it's not so much the outcome as it is the effort. You know, constantly praising the effort, but also when outcomes do come together, you know, you do show a level of appreciation by, you know, voicing social acknowledgement and broadcasting social acknowledgement that is very authentic, very genuine, and very specific based on what you are acknowledging. You're not just saying, oh, I want to acknowledge Marin because she's a great girl. I want to acknowledge Marin because, Marin, you just fucking managed this from start to finish all the way through every little thing. And when this happened, you did this and that happened. You did... I just want to acknowledge because the de the de the, the, when you acknowledge the detail, that just adds a level of richness to the reward system that, you know, in the brain that just gets it active, that you know, produces the desired result, which is a feel-good, you know, dopamine, basically. And I think also what we do particularly well is it's aligned to a value. Mm. So living the values and aligning that recognition to living those values is a great way to reinforce them. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Nice. Thanks for listening to Hey Kerwin. If you would like your questions answered, don't forget to use the hashtag Hey Kerwin on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.